Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Welcome to our Bloomberg 1130 Studios. Joe Quinlan, he's the head of market and thematic strategy at Merrill Lynch and U.S. Uh, trust. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be a great deal of anticipation about the volatility we might see on uh, Thursday. There's so much happening, uh, whether whether it's the hearing on Capitol Hill or the ECB uh, uh, meeting. How do you position yourself ahead of, of an event like those? Well, you know, we, we don't do a lot of positioning. You know, we're more yeah. investors than traders. But we do have to hold the hands of our clients to say, okay, what's the risk to the portfolios when it comes to the UK election or what's happening in the Middle East? And Thursday, so, but, you know, we kind of see through the political noise, try to and discern what's real, what's not, and focus on earnings, the underlying growth, um, you know, with the Fed messaging when it comes to the balance sheet. So we're trying to look beyond some of the noise. But if we get some real fireworks or some smoking, you know, fire instead of smoke on Thursday, yeah, you have to start thinking about what do we do with the portfolios to manage the risk. Let me just get a sense of how you regard Europe at this point. Um, when you look at the economy, it seems like it's in uh, decent to fine shape. Politically, it's still uh, a bit thorny. How, how, do you navigate, uh, how do you navigate that right now? We still like these big large cap companies, life science companies out of Switzerland, um, the, the capital machinery guys out of Germany. But, you know, actually, we're looking to buy some Spanish, Italian banks because I think Merkel's more into Europe now than ever before because of the differences with Trump administration. So if you've got a Germany acting more European and ready to step up and provide some of that capital, I think the spreads come in and I think some of these weaker banks look very good on the upside. Yeah, you highlight this uh, in a recent note, a comment from Angela Merkel. Uh, we Europeans must take our destiny into our uh, own hands. What changed after the, the French election or after the G7 summit or after the U.S. withdrew from, from, from the Paris Agreement? What's, what's Europe looking like now? Where is it headed, do you think? Well, I think I, I don't want to see a transatlantic break or a divorce. The United States and Europe are the bedrock of the global economy. But there's clearly frustration on the part of the Europeans, Brussels, France, and particularly Merkel, that the U.S. is going to just go its own way, and therefore we've got to just step up and be our own, you know, kind of grow up. Uh, the question is, will Germany actually lead and not lecture? So well, that's yet to be determined. So we see what's happening in the, in the realm of, of geopolitics. How worried are you about the uh, the continuity or the strength of the, the economic relationship between the U.S. And, and Europe at this point? I think it'll withstand the problems we have here in the near term with the Trump administration and also the Merkel. Because when you look at the underlying commercial linkages, they're very deep, they're very broad, their investment, their trade. Uh, you know, you've got Deere just announcing they're going to buy a German capital goods maker. That's going to continue. And Ireland is very much in the radar screens of a lot of U.S. companies related to taxes or not. So, yeah, I think business in general continues. But the policy overlay could be better. There's no, no one's talking about TTIP anymore because that died on the vine. Joe Quinlan, the head of market and thematic strategy at Merrill Lynch uh, and U.S. Trust. How much of a risk is trade still at this point? You mentioned uh, TTIP, that agreement that was being hammered out for, for a long time between the U.S. Uh, and Europe. Uh, is it still a downside risk, the, the fact that we could see some increased protectionism or some changes to trade policy? 
I think the biggest risk would be really local, uh, whether it's between NAFTA uh, and the United States, because it's the global supply chains. It's remarkable in the last 10 years or so, even the last five years, a lot of U.S. companies brought their supply chains closer uh, to the U.S. vis-a-vis Canada and Mexico, you know, away from China after the crisis. And now we're ready to disrupt those supply chains. Mexico is very important. It's just an extinction of the industrial production network of the United States. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, David. (laughs) Good morning, Tom. We've spent way too much time together. I think it's three days in a row. It's true. We'll have to change that. Thursday I'll be in D.C. (laughs) Joe Crinlin with us, Merrill Lynch and U.S. Trust, uh, as well with some good perspective. Um, One thing we've seen in our trade interviews is the idea of process, industrial process has changed everything. I understand that any politician has to go back to resonances of previous culture and dialogue within America. How do the politicians explain the new industrial pro- uh, process to beleaguered constituents? Well, Tom, I think they got to listen to the governors. You know, if you're the governor of South Carolina or Alabama, you, you, you've been at the table negotiating with these big multinationals in terms of tax incentives. But what are we going to get in return when it comes to the number of employees, how we're going to bring in parts, how we're going to increase our Made in America content? So I would talk to Kentucky governors, uh, M- Michigan maybe perhaps, but the southeastern part of this country has done a fabulous job reinventing itself as a manufacturing powerhouse courtesy of foreign multinationals being on the ground. You mentioned how you're able to sort of tune out or try to tune out the, the political noise. If, if I'm the, the head of a, a multinational, a German-based multinational, say, how am I supposed to navigate what I'm seeing from the president when it comes to uh, his focus on the trade deficit side? Well, I mean, that, that's very challenging, and there's a lot of angst around, you know, the kind of welcoming mat for here in Washington. But, you know, but if you're a CEO, you're spending more time out in the states or the local communities than you are in Washington. Obviously, you've got your big lobbyists working the corridors of power. But I think at the end of the day, the U.S. economy is still open. We've got a very large consumer base, great universities that you want to be here. You, a lot, just many multinationals can't afford not to be here. We're talking about European equities and what you find uh, attractive uh, there. Is is the basket of the basket of goods the basket of uh, kinds of companies similar in the U.S. when you're looking at uh, U.S. equities that you like? Uh, in, in general, whether it's you know pharmaceuticals, some logistics companies out of the Nordic states, but I think the upside, the opportunity, could be these weaker financial institutions in I dare say even Greece, mm-hmm. Spain, Italy have a barbell strategy. You have the risk out there. Uh, you want to own the big big guys. The cap. Yeah. Go no, ahead, I don't mean to interrupt, but, <laughs> but, but the theme this morning, uh, David Gura, yes. has been mergers and combinations. That's mm-hmm. the only way in a subpar nominal GDP. Is mm-hmm. that just what we're going to see, Joe Quinlan, is Andrew Mellon redux? I mean, yeah, more, more bolt-ons. It's, it's very hard to drive that organic growth. And yeah. you're, gonna, you're seeing really you know, the transatlantic alliance become even more consolidated by industry. I think that's time, you know, you got to buy the market share. And the, the shareholders are okay with it, so the board of directors. It's just very hard to come out and drive that, get those new markets. I, David, I think this is a huge deal. I mean, given what we see on the tape with futures deteriorating just in the last 20 minutes, yields once again coming down, mm-hmm. Joe Quinlan, mm-hmm. 2.15%. They haven't broken through in the two year. But you really just wonder, if rates don't rise, that's got to mean cheap money, which means the strong gets stronger, right? The strong gets stronger. They can, they can take on more risk, leverage up, not, not to the point where we're looking at it. But I think you know, the M&A, the share buybacks, the dividends, Tom, you know it's a, it's a tired story, but it's, it's playing out. And you, you don't, you don't want to miss it given where the yields are in the fixed income. Really. Have, a lot of, have a lot of people missed it? 
David uh, Gers missed it. No, the, John Tucker uh, total uh, missed it. Total, total missed it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm totally on top of it. <laughs> right. Now, I think a lot of folks have it. Just the disbelief of waiting for the turn, and it hasn't come yet. So I, we want the dividend payers, the growth players. And, but you can get some upside when it comes to the emerging markets and I think some of these technology companies yeah. leverage. Is there a limit yeah. to the leanness, how lean these companies can, can become? That's a good question. I mean, That's a really I, I, important I, question. I, I, working for a bank, I always think that same thing. <laughs> um, is there a limit? Yeah, not yet. Not that we've seen, right? I mean, it's a remarkable what we get out of a workforce being so taut and tight that it is. So, I mean, is there a limit? Sure, but we can we can yeah. automate. But the the question is, the consumers when we're sitting on a line for like you know two, two minutes before we get to a body, yeah. or that's we pay. Joe Quinlan with us, Merrill Lynch U.S. Trust. Thrilled that he's with us. Joe, uh, in the old days, you used to say, can you withstand a bear market? You know, you go into equities, you put risk at hand, and a bear market's defined, I'll call it 18%. The gloom crew would say 20%. It's been so long since we've enjoyed a 10% correction or an 18% bear market. Are we ready to withstand losses in a constructive fashion? I I, I think constructive... I think so, yes, but we're not seeing that, Tom. I mean, we've, we've, in the portfolios, you, you manage the risk. Um, we do have a lot of people, I think, well positioned because they didn't put all their money into into equities. We got a lot of folks sitting in fixed income, yielding virtually nothing, but that helps them sleep at night. So I think we can manage the downside. I guess you, you'd have to tell me how do we get to a bear market? What are the conditions, the catalysts? I don't see any. My experience is when we get to a bear market, we get there by not exper- by not knowing it's coming. But then we, then, it's that, like, right. oh, that was harsh. Right. That, 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 now, now we see it. It was not plain to see. But a certain plain. percentage of our younger girl-like audience has never enjoyed a bear market. But, but um, I think uh, what I've noticed with some of our clients, many of our clients actually, coming out of the Great Recession 2009, 2010, they really what, remain cautious. We have, we have clients still in cash, for instance, or they're buying hard assets, timber, farmland, um, gold, commercial real estate. So I don't see – I see a cautious undertone to the, the investors since 2009. So maybe that minimizes some of the risk on the downside. We'll get through the, the Comey Palooza this week into to next week when we have a two-day uh, Fed meeting. We've heard a lot of commentary from Fed policymakers about the challenges of the plans for unwinding that massive balance sheet. Uh, and a lot of them maintaining it's not going to have a, a, a huge effect on, on the market. At least that's their, their hope. What's your sense of, of how that's all going to play out? I think it's going to play out in a very long term. Deliberate way. I mean, very very long term. It's not going to happen all at once. I think the Fed wants to move next week and then kind of step back and reassess how strong is the economy, what kind of Q3 numbers are we going to look at. You know, we need the underlying strength to unwind the balance sheet. And so, so does Europe and Japan and everyone else for that matter. So I think that's it, it, unwinding the balance sheet is now front and center. But when it comes to actually happening, you're talking story more 2020. 21 in that end sense. It's going to be a long-term process. That long? Yes, I think it could take that long. Because you're, 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 it's going to, you're going to, they're not going to do it all at once. It's going to be well advertised. I think they're going to go slow. Now, another issue could be who's going to be running the Fed a, a year from now or so. That's going to be another issue. And the how composition much, of the Fed. How much thought are you giving to that? I mean, how, how, how big a difference could that make? We're seeing I'm, names floated uh, now about who might be. We're just, we're just starting to look at that. And kind of, I don't think no one radical, but like it could be something that could, could be a variable in terms of the timing. Mm-hmm. I, I look, Joe, at all the discussion today and people in the markets, and they still go back to basic securities research 101, which is 
25 multiples, 27 multiples. It's a bit rich right now. Mm. Where is the value in the market? Seeing the value in the market, Tom, I think in certain, I think banks are still, there's some good value at banks, you know, whether it's large banks, some regional banks. And is that because you wake up January 1st to know you're going to get X percent dividend, dividend growth in, in share buyback? Uh, that's part of it. But I also think the banks are, you know, many of them are under owned. I think there's some are trading at book value. Um, I, I do believe the U.S. economy plods ahead. Uh, good demographics, household ownership is rising. The households in, in general net worth is at all time highs. Um, so I think there's some value there. And believe it or not, Tom, I think there's value in technology. I know that's crazy because I just go back to like all the new internet users that are going to have these phones, these devices get connected. The digital global economy. It's that we're only halfway there in terms of its overall development. So there, I see some value there. Well, hone in on that a little bit, if you would. I mean, we saw what happened with with, with Snap. Are you interested in the hardware side more than the software side? Where do where do you see that value or that potential yeah, value? More, more in the hardware. I mean, yeah. look at an Apple or even say a Facebook if they can crack India. I come back to India and China because you know over two billion people in India's behind when it comes to the internet usage, but it's coming. You see it with the females, the girls. That's going to be a big issue, a driver for education. So, you know, Africa's too poor to have a smartphone just yet, but that's changing rapidly in the big cities. So I think, you know, you've got to look at these big U.S. multinationals, look at the valuations, how can they drive earnings, mm -hmm. and then you've got to look in the emerging markets and match it up. Joe, very valuable. Thank yeah. you so much with Merrill Lynch and U.S. Trust Joseph Quinlan uh, with us today. Failure to Adjust is a wonderful, complete book on trade dynamics. It will make you smarter and more acute about our trade. He's with the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's gone Rooseveltian. Is that how you pronounce it, David Gurr? Yeah, Rooseveltian on yeah, us. Like he sees that. a new deal in the trade world. When you say new deal, Ted Alden, Republicans turn shades of pink. What is a new deal? Uh, in trade, no, I'm sure. I'm sure they do. Uh, it's a, referring to a new paper I've, I've written with my friend Bob Lighton, who's a superb economist. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to think through the problem of, you know, here we are in this hyper-competitive global economy, and it's not just trade; it's technology, and Americans are having trouble responding to that. Particularly, a lot of people who are not uh, getting the education, the skills they need to thrive in that economy. And we argue that we need to think about that. Uh, systematically at the federal level, at the state level. And the Republicans have a lot of good ideas here in terms of, uh, of you know, people taking individual responsibility for their career choices. But Democrats also have a lot of good ideas in terms of trying to give people a leg up. So, so we were trying to blend those two in this, uh, in this new paper we put together. Yeah, walk us through what, what you're proposing, uh, just in, in, in broad detail. One of the things you're, you're suggesting is we need kind of a Kind of national, an elective national service mechanism just to get people trained, get people new skills. I mean, there are a bunch of different things. On the one hand, we're, we're arguing, you know, let's let's eliminate obstacles to people being able to find work. We've got licensing restrictions across states that are a huge obstacle. You look at land use restrictions, make it very difficult for people to move to areas where jobs are being created. I mean, we call in general for, you know, tax reform to increase investment. That's all things that the Republicans would be very positive about. Uh, on the other side, you've got to make it possible for people to acquire the skills they need to fill the good jobs that are being created. So we call, for instance, for, for lifetime career loans where, you know, not just borrowing for college, but you could borrow to, to train at any point in your career, uh, repayable based on 
future income, which is an idea that's been developed in the in the student loan uh, area. And then on the service side, particularly for young people, expanded opportunities for national service to work with uh, with other people from different backgrounds to develop a set of skills to launch yeah. them in their careers. That sounds positively Australian with my limited knowledge of uh-huh. Australian. You know, Australians which, have done well at some of these things, so yeah, maybe well, we've got something to learn. Yeah. Do we have any polit- political feasibility on either party to be less American and more Australian? I mean, I do think, you know, we're in this period where predictions are really hard because the Republicans are a divided party. I think some of what Trump ran on, I think, fits very well with this agenda, particularly helping, you know, a lot of the voters from the Rust Belt who put him in the White House. But you've got a Republican Party that's that's still basically a tax-cutting party, very allergic to any sort of positive role for government. But I do believe there is the possibility here for new cross-party coalitions. Whether we're going to get there remains to be seen, but I, I think the possibility mm. exists. Ted Alden with us. We will continue with the Council on Foreign Relations. Maybe we'll go back to more traditional trade dynamics talk sugar. here. I want to talk some sugar. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're in charge. Edward Alden with us, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, author of the book Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind uh, in the Global Economy. And going to break, Ted, I said I wanted to talk uh, sugar. Looks like we're going to get a press conference sugar? this afternoon with Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, on a deal with Mexico on sugar. So much of our focus has been on NAFTA, the prospect for reforms or changes to uh, NAFTA. Of course, the White House sending its letter to Congress indicating it plans to renegotiate that deal. What can we learn about this administration's trade policy from how they've handled the issue of sugar with Mexico? Well, we will see what the deal is this afternoon, but I think this is actually an encouraging sign. I mean, sugar is one of those difficult issues where you've got, uh, you know, a very protected market in the United States, uh, sugar producers who rely on quotas and other trade barriers. You've got a Mexico that's pretty efficient in producing sugar, sells a lot of it to the United States. And so this is just one of those issues where you've got to balance off the interests of Mexico, the interests of sugar users like candy makers here in the United States, and the interests of the sugar producers in Florida and and the sugar beet uh, producers in Minnesota and other places. And I think the fact that they've been able to come away with a deal is very encouraging. I mean, you contrast that with Canadian lumber, for instance, where we're in the middle of a, of a much more serious trade conflict. I think this is a good sign. I think bodes well for the NAFTA renegotiation. What have you ob- observed about the, the interpersonal relationship here between Secretary Ross and his Mexican uh, counterparts? When you, when you look for signs of optimism, uh, does it seem like there is a, uh, a good basis for conversation at the very least between, uh, between these officials? I mean, I do. I think Ross has emerged as a very important figure in this administration on trade. He's very active on the subject. He's very engaged both uh, here in the United States with the the various interests and and with his foreign counterparts. I think the fact that you've got Bob Lighthizer now confirmed as the U.S. trade representative, I, I think we have the makings here of uh, of a serious professional team on trade policy. And, and I think the fact that the sugar deal has come together. Here's an indication of that. What do we know about uh, Bob Lighthizer? How will be different from Wilbur Ross? He's in Paris, as I understand it, this week, meeting with the OECD, beginning to travel some. Of course, Wilbur Ross had been doing the bulk of that while we were waiting for the confirmation of, of Bob Lighthizer. What's he going to do differently? How's he going to compliment Secretary Ross? 
Well, I think there's clearly some overlap. They both have a long history in the steel industry. Uh, Ross as an investor and Lighthizer as a trade lawyer in Washington uh, for steel interests. Um, you know, Lighthizer goes back to the Reagan administration, very long history working on these issues. I think they, they share in common the belief that the United States needs to be tougher with its trading partners, uh, drive better deals. Um, I, I think the, the difficult issues will have to do with the role of trade negotiations going forward. I, I, I think Lighthizer is more amenable to, to doing trade deals of, of various sorts. I, I think there's a fair bit of resistance from, from the White House and, and from yeah. Ross. So we'll see how that plays out. How are we staffed to do trade? I mean, across state, across commerce, et cetera, et cetera. Are we staffed? I mean, is anybody calling Ted Alden? Well, I mean, no part of this government is properly staffed. The, the Trump administration is woefully behind in filling the key positions. It's starting to happen slowly in trade. Um, we've just uh, had a deputy U.S. trade representative announce there's a, a, a you know, an international trade undersecretary in place in commerce. But it's still a kind of very thin layer at the top. And, and I think, unfortunately, it's very imbalanced. You've got extraordinary representation from steel and other heavy industries. You know, nothing in the senior ranks dealing with the very important services part of the economy, you know, financial services or you know, banking, architecture, anything else. You've got nothing dealing with intellectual property industries. Uh, the agriculture side is still really weak. So a lot of U.S. trade interests are not yet well represented in this administration. Ask you about the the climate deal. I remember there was some criticism. I hope I'm remembering this right. Some criticism of the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it didn't address uh, climate head-on or in much uh, detail. Are, are trade documents good riders for things like uh, climate change? And in light of what we've seen uh, over these last 12, 18 months after this this campaign and the the rejection of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, are they going to become riders for for issues like those? Well, uh, yeah, here's my concern on 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 Paris. The, uh, there's been a trade issue that's under uh, underlies all the discussion on uh, on climate, and that is if you have some countries that are using a lot of of cheap but dirty energy, are they thereby gaining an unfair competitive advantage in global markets? And so you've had the Europeans muse, for instance, about charging a carbon tax on American exports to offset that advantage. The Canadians have sort of mulled over the same idea. It's never gotten uh, to a point of being a serious threat yet. But with the U.S. now having pulled out of the Paris Accords, I think that is a more genuine threat. The U.S. for a long time was a leader on pushing for environmental-related provisions in trade agreements. It now seems to be on the other side of that issue, and I think the Europeans are going to be pushing that much more strongly. Something stood out to me when, when Scott Pruitt was speaking in the, the Brady press briefing room after the president announced his decision to pull out of the Paris Accord. Uh, he was talking about going back to the table to renegotiate the, the Paris deal, and he said the U.S. will always have a seat at the table. Uh, we're the U.S., and I wonder how that rings out across Europe and, and around the world in light of what we've seen with Paris, with the G7, uh, with the NATO summit to, to an extent. Is, is this administration overestimating its ability to get back to the table to negotiate deals like the Paris Accord? I mean, I do actually. I mean, the, the problem with that, you know, with that 
idea in the Paris Accord is that the, the targets were always voluntary under Paris. So, you know, the notion that you're going to somehow go back and renegotiate it fundamentally, I just think is kind of nonsensical. And I don't think the rest of the world has any interest. It's extremely hard to put together these multi-country deals. I mean, we've seen that in trade. We haven't had a successful world trade round now for more than two decades because it's so hard to put these deals together. You know, I think the same is true of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, the U.S., if it wanted back in, I think could get back in. But the notion that you're going to redo that whole set of negotiations, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for that. I think other countries are going to move forward on their own without the United States. I think militarily, clearly, the United States is indispensable. In economic terms, not so much. Yeah. Uh, countries have lots of options uh, that don't involve the it, United States. Can a president have power within trade discussions? Is there such a thing as an executive order or executive action in the Ted Alden world? Well, we'll leave it there. We've got some difficulties. Our, our Ken Felio is at the desk trying to figure out what's going on. We thank Ted Alden for being with us from our studios in Washington, but there seems to be a fat... Was that I you, just, John Tucker, no, with a fat just, fat? Nobody could understand your question. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. Okay, I see. John Tucker, yes, there we go. I, I think, Dave, David, I mean, isn't that a fair question? I mean, the president has acted... We had the, the news yesterday that he ripped up the NATO speech in some way Yeah. and acted almost ad hoc. I mean, can he do that in trade? I'm not so sure he can. No, but we are we are seeing, uh, or we have seen, with countervailing duties, yeah. uh, this White House is approaching things in a more piece, piecemeal way. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, as we saw yesterday with this letter that the president signed publicly, he is making his intentions known about what he wants to, yeah. wants to see in a more formal way than his predecessor. Mm-hmm. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated. California Governor Jerry Brown signed a cooperation agreement with China on climate positive trade and investment. That move comes as President Trump announces the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. Governor Brown discussed that initiative with uh, Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie, our colleague Tom McKenzie in Beijing. And let's listen to a bit of their conversation. We can't reduce our carbon footprint unless we deal with transportation. Transportation is 40 percent of the greenhouse gases. The only way we're going to do that is with clean cars. The clean cars are not just going to come out of California, although that's part of it. They're going to come out of China and uh, other parts of the world. But I have to say, China is a real driver in the money they invest, in the uh, diligence of their innovation. And I want California to partner uh, with China in that endeavor. Otherwise, uh, we won't be able to achieve our climate goals. And and you talked about innovation there. How much of a threat do you think is posed to U.S. innovation in clean tech, green tech, that they've led in, in California, but across the U.S.? How much of that is under threat now from Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord? Well, I think the the role of America in the world has been um, reduced because of of Trump's pullout from uh, the Paris Accord. And in general, I'd say the Chinese are on the move. They're a rising power. Uh, Writers are are noticing how does a rising power get along with a power that may be uh, slowing down a bit. So I would say that we're definitely um, facing competitive pressure. And at the same time, we're very divided. 
Uh, we have a lot of uh, issues about identity, about politics. Uh, the Republicans are so divided from the Democrats. I think we're going to have to find more national unity if we're going to be able to maintain our leadership, uh, let alone our so-called dominance. I mean, China's got 1.3 billion. They're investing. Uh, America now, uh, at least if President Trump has his way, is going to reduce their uh, health, their medical investments, their energy investments, uh, and put most of their uh, investment on, on weapons. So I would say that's short-sighted. And under the best of American leadership, we've got our work cut out for us because China is so much bigger and their command economy, along with capitalism and the market economy, is a very powerful uh, combination that we're going to have to find uh, in our diversity and our entrepreneurial spirit uh, also a greater unity or we're going to find that uh, we're going to lose markets. That's uh, California Governor Jerry Brown in conversation with our colleague Tom McKenzie, who is based uh, in Beijing, uh, Jerry Brown in, Ca- in China, signing an agreement on climate with uh, with the Chinese government. Michael McKee, our international politics and economics correspondent, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios now. And, and Mike, I was struck just uh, in the days following the U.S. decision to withdraw, the president's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, how much of this was couched in economic uh, terms. You saw the statement from President Obama, President Trump's predecessor, saying that uh, that was what was going to be lost largely by this, not really I mean, mentioning the environment in some to some degree here, but really focusing on the economics. Yeah, well, President Trump made it all about economics and the idea that the uh, climate accord would cost jobs in extraction industries like coal mining and uh and you know other energy production, uh, it may not really do that because uh, other factors are already weighing on those industries. The price of natural gas is killing coal at this point. Uh, you look at the Chinese; uh, the pollution is so bad they're mothballing plants, uh, coal-fired plants, as fast as they can. They set a goal of uh, reducing their or having their carbon emissions peak by 2030, and it looks like they may beat that by 10 years. Uh, where we may miss out on jobs is in the industries that might be supported by federal dollars, uh, you know, research and development of clean energy um, opportunities. Uh, and that's what uh, Governor Brown, along with the uh, idea of uh, global warming and its impact on the environment, that's what he is talking yeah. about. He signed an agreement today with the Chinese to, uh, to work together on developing electric vehicles. We forget this, but Governor Brown was a driver of Plymouth satellites. He was so conservative (laughs) and he was so cool for school. He drove Plymouth satellites, basic frugal cars. Is he a liberal? Oh, very much so. (laughs) He's very much a liberal. And he's governed a very liberal state twice now. Uh, California is so big. Its economy is the sixth biggest in the world. In the world. And it it has long been accused of having its own foreign policy. And that is becoming coming into even starker relief now with their disagreements with the Trump administration. And you see that in this trip to China. All governors go to China and pitch their states and come do business with us and sign trade deals. But no governors that I know of come out and issue foreign policy declarations in opposition to the United States government. Is that what he did today? Essentially, he did. He said that the the Trump withdrawal from the Paris Accord will be a significant problem for the world and for the United States. And he committed 
California to work with China. Are you gonna Are you gonna stay around so we can talk Predators hockey? We can talk Predators hockey, indeed. <laughs> They're defa- uh, I mean, it's, for it's those, you, I mean, Gura doesn't know beans. I mean, no, I don't. Brooklyn. Well, understand. the real question is is the bad breath question. You know, so well, we'll get into that. Sydney yeah, Crosby. Uh, come on. <laughs> it is great hockey. That's what I know. I usually do my book of the year, end of June, into the 4th of July weekend. We can't do that because he's in the studio. And so when the guest shows up in the studio, particularly because he's usually ensconced up outside Boston lecturing uh, at Tufts and the Fletcher School, we will do it now. It is called The Leader's Bookshelf. It is the most odd and twisted book of the year. Take a guy who knows what he's doing, who reads a lot. Go out to 50 of his best friends and say, which 50 books would you read? So with a leader's bookshelf, you get about, well, you get more than 50. You get like 70 or 80 books where basically a lot of people smarter than you or me say, shut up and read this. And it's proven very, very successful. James Trevitas joins us, ex-U.S., retired, R-E-T, period, U.S. Navy. Which book did you learn about as you put the leader's bookshelf together? Which book surprised you? The book that really surprised me was Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which was suggested by my friend Stan. And Captain Courageous is in there as well. Indeed. Uh, Mine was Connecticut Yankee, King Mm -hmm. Arthur's Court, Mark Twain, suggested by General Stan McChrystal. It's a book, Tom, about innovation and leadership. Here's a 19th century engineer. It goes back a thousand years in time. By definition, he's the Mm -hmm. smartest person on the planet, but he can't get anybody to do anything. He has all the right answers, but he has to drive innovation home. Terrific. What what would President Trump learn from reading Kipling's Captain's Courageous? He would understand the courage that is needed by men and women who go into combat. And I think it would weigh heavily on him as he makes some hard decisions coming up about, for example, more troops to Afghanistan, more troops to Syria. Let's dovetail this with your your new book, very prolific, uh, Admiral Stravitas, with the new book, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's uh, Oceans. It's part history, uh, part prescription for what should happen when it comes to our our maritime issues, and also memoir. Can you write about the first time that you stepped onto vessel sailed across the the Pacific? When were you reading uh, when when you were in the Navy? When when did you find time to do it? How important was reading to you as you worked your way up? They only work like a three-hour day, you know. (laughs) As may or may not surprise you, of all the services the Navy officers and men and women, our sailors, are huge readers. Why? Because it does take time to get from San Diego, California to the Arabian Gulf. You're not in danger while you're steaming there. You stand watch. You make sure the ocean is not going to take out something on your ship. But at the end of the day, you have time to read. So uh, many sailors are readers, and I tried to pour all that into sea power, and that's how the two books fit together. How important is our Navy right now when you look at all of the the conflicts around the world? What role is the U.S. Navy playing? This is the heart of the book. And frankly, it's three things. It's trade and making sure that these global commons are open. As as you all know, 95% of the world's trade moves by sea. Secondly, it's the alliances and the geopolitics because Russia and China are rising in this capability. We don't have a free ride. The oceans are not an American lake. We've got to compete. And thirdly, it's the environment. 70% of the oxygen that we breathe actually comes from photosynthesis in the seas. They are crucial for us. There are plenty of people, you among them, calling for a bigger Navy, for for more 
uh, ships. Square that for us. We have a huge Navy compared to uh, other countries around the world. Why does it need to be bigger? Why do we need uh, more vessels at this point? Let's do the numbers. Um, We have 275 warships today that are capable of offensive combat operations. Every responsible analyst says we need 350, David, and that's because of the scope and scale of what we need to do. We're in the Eastern Med jostling with the Russians over Syria. We are in the Arabian Gulf trying to keep Qatar and Saudi Arabia from blowing up and keeping Iran from closing the Strait of Hormuz. We're in the South China Sea where China is attempting to take over the entire body, and we're in the Arctic playing Hunt for Red October. We've got a lot of needs for ships. We need to go from 275 to 350, Tom. Alex Lockie writes it up in Business Insider. It's Lady Gulf, I think, again. We have three aircraft carriers, two cruisers, 12 destroyers trying not to run into each other at night somewhere in the vicinity of North Korea. Should we... How should our listeners interpret that, Admiral? Um, It's rare to put three aircraft carriers together, but it's not unheard of. It sends a powerful signal. The first thing any president asks as crisis looms is where are the carriers? When a president puts three of them together, Secretary Mattis knows the impact of this. It's a strong signal to North Korea. That's what's going on. Do we know where the carriers are? Can they be like a submarine where they're sort of out there, but nobody knows where they are? We know where they are always, obviously, but it's hard for others to track them. These things can move, Tom, at 1,000 miles a day. So these are big machines of war, wow. seven-acre flight deck, 80 combat aircraft. I mean, they moved 30-plus knots Absolutely, World War II was 20 was a big deal, right? Indeed. I commanded yeah. Enterprise Carrier, and she could go uh, up toward 35 knots. She had eight nuclear reactors, never needed well, to fuel. What's the biggest misconception that we have about Enterprise or other carriers, the public? What's, what's the thing we get most wrong I think the public would say, well, these ships must be invulnerable. They're 100,000 tons. They're just enormous. They have all this defensive capability. But unfortunately, they are vulnerable to sea mines, to uh, hypersonic cruise missiles, to submarines. So we have to have the destroyers and cruisers around them to protect them. I think the public doesn't appreciate the integrated defense that's required for these beautiful, beautiful carriers. We'll come back here in just a minute, but what's uh, what's on the horizon when it comes to technology, what future ships look like? We hear about the literal combat vehicle, all of that. What's, what's the ship of the future look like? It kind of looks like what you'd picture as Batman's destroyer. It's very modernistic. It's got stealth technology. It may be able to semi-submerge. Mm-hmm. It'll operate more unmanned vehicles off it, and above all, it'll be much more hardened for cyber conflict because that's where war is going. Come back oh, here with uh, Emma yeah. James Tavridis, now the uh, Fletcher School of oh. Tufts, author of Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Great Oceans. Two admirals say read it, Mr. Mullen, Admiral McRaven as well. A captain says read it. He would be John McCain <laughs> of Arizona. And Robert Gates says read it as well. Sea Power, very thoughtful about, as David mentioned, the geography uh, of our oceans. We're going to come back with uh, Admiral Stavridis. Lots to talk about, including... Uh, some of the vignettes from uh, his leader's book. It is my book of the summer, and we'll do a lot with that in the next four or five weeks. We're even going to try to force Michael Barr to read it as well <laughs> and get him to just read read leader's bookshop. David Gura and Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, here with retired Admiral James Tavridis, the author of Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's uh, Oceans. And we were talking yesterday with Larry Summers, uh, university professor at Harvard, about a piece that was in the Wall Street Journal not just about a week ago by Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster and Gary Cohn, the 
chairman of the National Economic Council at the White House. They were laying out their vision, or the White House's vision here for the U.S.'s role uh, in the world. A big theme throughout your book, your new book, uh, is the importance of alliances. And uh, I wonder what you've made uh, about that piece in the Wall Street Journal, what we saw at the G7, what we saw at the NATO summit uh, preceding it, how worried you are about what the transatlantic relationship is going to look like, what the U.S.'s role in the world is going to be. Well, I talk a lot in Sea Power about the the way we should think of the oceans. We tend to, unfortunately, think of them as discrete little uh, lakes, the Mediterranean Sea, the Caribbean, the Atlantic. Yep. They're all connected. So I am very worried that we are, you would say, in the investment world, we're undervaluing, we're underweight in the alliances right now because the White House is not making the right moves to reassure allies and get them, in this case, to see with us. NATO has good capability in that regard, but we're dismissing it and not building the alliance structure we need for maritime operations. When you look at the the, the team of advisors that President Trump has, and we've talked about how it's uh, smaller than you might expect, there are a lot of jobs that haven't been uh, filled, filled yet. Are you satisfied that there are people there giving him uh, the right advice or nuanced advice or the kind of information he needs to do his job well, whether or not he accepts that or works off of it is, a, is another question. But are those people around him, are they there in government right now? Uh, he's got the right team at the very top, David, but there are no deputy secretaries. There are no assistant secretaries, the next level down. There are no senior executive service. We have no secretary of the Navy and a gaping hole in the size of our fleet, as I talk about in Sea Power. So that nuanced advice is at the very top, uh, and it's not clear to me he's listening or acting on it either. I brought it up the, the day it came out. Thank you, Bowden, for giving me the heads up. David Frum wrote in The Atlantic, uh, David Brooks in The New York Times, Lawrence Summers was, was with us a few days ago, all talking about this concept of arena, which to me is out of Game of Thrones or an old Charlton Heston movie. How does a grizzled military veteran like you look at the comedy of a politician speaking of an arena? Arenas, as a term and the way we ought to think about it, is the last resort. We don't want to go into an arena any more than we want to go into the Thunderdome to go in exactly. one comes Thank out. You. The yeah. wrong way to think about it. We need to be finding solutions that are collaborative, especially at sea in this maritime world. Arena, really bad yeah. mental map. I want to go back to one of the books in my, in my book of the summer, the leader's uh, book of yours, uh, uh, Admiral. And there's those points where you just stop dead in your tracks, and it may be an Averill Harriman who served for years or a John Hay of, of uh, 150 years ago, Lincoln secretary who worked with Roosevelt. There's a point in the end of Eric Larrabee's book on FDR where James Longstreet's wife, his young wife, is a riveter in a World War II factory in Georgia. Who was the oldest general or type that you worked with? You were out 1975. Nobody wanted to join the Navy. You did. Who was the elder that you saw within your career? Um, the admiral who most impressed me in terms of longevity was Admiral Vern Clark, who was a chief of naval operations. And he was came out of the mold of Admiral Arleigh Burke. He was a destroyer officer. He operated high speed at sea, but deep and thoughtful when he came ashore in the Pentagon. Those kind of figures for all of us who pull us along in our lives are crucial. You write, uh, as I say, the book is, is part memoir, and, and uh, each of these chapters is divided by a, a, a different ocean. You start with the Pacific, there's the Atlantic, Mediterranean, Arctic, 
there's the experience of going to those places for the for the first time and the romance associated with that. You say that your dad was not one who was fond of being on the sea. You you end yeah. up joining the the Navy. When you look at recruitment today, young people who are weighing whether or not to join the service, how do you how do you what's your sense of how how likely they are to do that? What does the the Navy need to do more to recruit people to follow in your footsteps to join the Navy? Well, first of all, that's essentially why I wrote the book, to talk to the next generation of sailors coming along and uh, uh, impart what I had learned, which was simply a pass-through of what others had taught me, David. Um, The Navy needs to help identify that um, to be on a ship at sea is is being part of a long, continuous line that goes back thousands of years, that it's an office with the best view in the world, that you bond with your shipmates in a way you can't in any other profession, and that you live a life of adventure and travel. Not a bad package if you think about it. You know, mother of all oceans, the cradle of colonization, the future sea, the Mediterranean where war at sea began, the likely zone of conflict, Stalled in the past, the Caribbean, promise and peril up north, and as Admiral Stravitas mentioned, the outlaw sea oceans as crime scenes. The new book is Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. Uh, we will take a close look at that. Is this just out, right? Like the movie rights? Today. Out. Today. The, the today. Movie, movie today. Yeah. If the movie rights been so, did you force everybody at Tufts to buy this? I, I did. And also, <laughs> also they they've already that. cast uh, me in the movie. It's going to be Danny DeVito. And I'm <laughs> really excited. <laughs> George Clooney inexplicably turned the part down. <laughs> sea Power with uh, Danny DeVito. Uh, look for uh, it. Look for that <laughs> Memorial Day. Fourth of July, uh, 2000. Uh, 19 Admiral James Trevitas of Tufts and the Fletcher School as well. I think he did listen to me. I, he didn't decide what I wanted him to decide. And uh, I think he decided uh, wrong. I think it's not good, not in the best interest of the United States, what he decided. And uh, so, but, but in terms of, you know, the, the way that I look at this thing and do you, do you interact with politicians or do you not, um, my, my view is that first and foremost, things are about uh, can you help your country? And if you can help your country and you do that by interacting, then you do it. So you have other people that are leaving the table, though, like Bob Iger, like Elon Musk. Is the president jeopardizing his relationship with one of his key constituencies? I would differentiate leaving a council and advising in a way that you think can help our country. And I, I, I think the uh, first one is a judgment call that people make. Uh, I didn't join a council, mm-hmm. and so it's not a decision I had to make, but, but I understand both sides of that. Uh, but, but advising on something that you believe will help America, I think is a, is a, is a requirement mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, uh, as a CEO. You, you definitely do that. And, you know, if, honestly, if I get the chance to... I, uh, go pitch the uh, Paris Agreement again, I'm going to do it again because I think it's very important that we engage to fight climate change on a, on a global basis. This isn't something where uh, you can solve it country by country. 
It requires a, a global action. You know, emissions created in one country affect another. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's something that we feel very strongly about. And uh, I wanted to do every single thing that we could do to, um, to, to tell how important it was to, to stay in the agreement. Why didn't you join a council? Why didn't I? Because uh, two reasons. One, uh, my primary job is being the CEO of the company, and I spend uh, the bulk of my waking hours doing that, and, and I do so willingly because I love the company and the people in it. And so traveling back east isn't something that I, that I uh, look forward to doing, except when I need to do. Secondly, I don't find these uh, councils in general and committees to be terribly productive. And, uh, uh, but but it, it wasn't about not wanting to advise on mm -hmm. something where I thought that, um, you know, we could help or we had a point of view that should be heard. And so I'm doing the latter. I, I can't imagine a situation where I wouldn't do the latter because I think it's in the best interest of America to do it. And I am first and foremost an American. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.